If you would, turn to your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to the book of Nahum. If you're visiting or or haven't been here in a while, I've been going through the book of Nahum. That's not a common book to preach through, but it is a good one. It is part of God's word to us, and so sometimes we neglect some of these minor prophets, and so I want to continue in that. While you're turning there, I'll, I'll ask God to help us in this. Father, we thank you again for the day. We thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us to understand this word, that you would help us to understand who you are through your word and how we are to act through your word, that you, that you would help us to understand why you have given us this word through Nahum so many years ago and how it can apply to us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, if you, if you remember, kind of quick review, Nahum is bringing the solemn, sad, scary, and vengeful warning to the city of Nineveh. And this is coming about a hundred years after Jonah. Jonah had went to Nineveh and preached after Jonah had his own ordeals. God ultimately brought him to Nineveh so that he could preach And the city repented. The Assyrians, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. And and Jonah went and preached and they repented and they turned around and they lived for God for some time. And now we're about a hundred years later and they have turned back to their wicked, evil ways. And so now Nahum is bringing a little bit of a different message to the city of Nineveh. He is bringing the message that judgment is indeed coming. And... Last, last month, or last time I preached, we saw specific predictions of how this judgment would come. He was very specific. And it's important that we understand prophecy should be specific. When, when God speaks, He doesn't speak vaguely in overtones or undertones like the horoscopes do. And like sometimes you'll hear prophecies, you'll hear about it maybe in churches or in Christianity where prophecies are spoken, and they can speak them in a vague way where you go, wow, that's true. That's not how God prophesies. That's not how he uses his prophets. And, and Nahum was very specific in how this was going to happen. We heard how the utter destruction would be to a point where the city would be wiped off the map. It was so, so extravagant the way Nahum is, is speaking that Nobody in the time would have believed it apart from God believing that God is ultimate, the ultimate authority. Because Nahum's basically saying, this city will be forgotten. It will be gone. You won't even know where it was. And he was exactly right on that. But at the time, you're talking about the biggest city probably that the world had ever seen. This was New York City of its time. This was to say, I mean, it would be like me saying, hey, in a few years, New York City is going to be wiped out completely and you won't even know it was there. Well, you'll go, there's no way. That's the biggest city in the world. Yeah, well, it actually may not be. I don't know if it is or not. But at this time, Nineveh was the biggest city. So he, he prophesied that that was going to happen. And how God was the one who would execute this judgment. Although he uses others to implement 
that judgment. Ultimately, it was God's judgment. And how God's judgment and destruction of Assyria, and this is kind of the theme of the whole book, God's judgment and destruction of Assyria was God's mercy and redemption of Israel. Because you see, Assyria is the one that is suppressing Israel at this time. So having those things in mind, we're now in chapter 1 and verse 14. And I'm going to be honest with you. I thought verse 14 and 15... It's interesting when you read through the minor prophets. They're not very long, and a lot of times you don't really dig in deep in them. So I thought, verse 14 and 15, just reading it, it won't take very long, and then I'll move on into chapter 2, and I may get through the whole chapter. And then I started just reading over and over verse 14 and 15 and realized that's probably not going to happen that way. Okay, so we may not get past verse 15 today, um, because there's a lot here in verse 14 and 15. So that may be where we stop. I'm, God will be our guide, I hope. So, But in verse 14, Nahum chapter 1, verse 14, the Lord says, the Lord has given a command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the molded image I will dig your grave, for you are vile. So God is talking here to the king of Assyria, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And this is God speaking through Nahum to him. And this verse has three parts. There's three things here that God is going to declare, that he's going to do to declare his power. The first part, it says, your name shall be perpetuated no longer. You realize man wants to live forever? It's part of our, it's part of our design, right? We were, mankind, Adam, was created to live forever. So that's still in our wiring, so to speak. We have this desire to live forever. I, I mean, there's been... How many, I mean, all kinds throughout history, looking for the fountain of youth, right? Looking for these miracle things these to, to extend life. We were created to live forever before the fall. A redeemed man, so if you're redeemed, if you're a Christian, you understand that we will live forever in Christ. We have found eternal life, right? We found the fountain of youth youth, so to speak. It's a little different than what they all wanted, but we found it. We will live forever in Christ. But the unredeemed seek ways in which to live forever and ways to live on. Even though there's a, there's a realization that I'm probably going to die, everybody's going to die, but I want somehow to be remembered. I want to live on. And one of the ways lost people try to do this a lot is by their legacy. Right? You hear that a lot. What is, what is your legacy going to be? It's, it's a big thing in sports. What's your legacy? The big-time sports heroes, so to speak, the, the NBA athletes, Major League Baseball players, football players, all that. They're all concerned about their legacies. The coaches are concerned about their legacies. Other people, they're always worried about, how am I going to be remembered? There's a desire to be remembered even after we die. 
So they re- so they don't. There's there's other ways that people that there's there's people that donate millions of dollars to different institutions that have buildings or schools or hospitals or parks named after them. Have you noticed this? I, I, this is what's coming to my mind as as I'm reading this and thinking about the king of Assyria and how important it would have been for him to have his name remembered. And I got to thinking about different places and the, the things people do to have their names put on a building. I looked up ECU. Do you know that more than half of the buildings on ECU's campus are named after somebody? Most of which were from donating money. Once in a while it's different. Once in a while it's an actual honor. Maybe it's, there's colleges named after people too. Sometimes it's the actual person that started the college, and they go back and they name it after them in honor of them. But most of the time it's from donating money. And actually, so ECU's just over half of their buildings. That's pretty low compared to a lot of the major universities. OU's campus has four buildings on campus that are not named after somebody. I was this. I kind of got sucked into this, so bear with me here. There was one college. I can't remember the name of it. It was a small college, and this billionaire's wife was going to donate twenty million dollars to the college if they would put her name on it. It was like John Smith College or something like that, and they were going to call it her name. I can't remember her name, and then it was going to be her name and John Smith College. And she she had twenty million dollars ready to give. And the college was struggling. It was, I mean, colleges are not doing great after COVID. And so they needed the money. And so it went to, they had to look up all the things. And there was actually a judge that said you can't do that because in the original naming of the university, it could not be changed from the guy who founded it. It couldn't be added to, couldn't be taken away. And so they couldn't take, they couldn't put her name on the college. So, being a great philanthropist like she was, she withdrew the $20 million. Well, I'm not giving you the money then. If you're not going to name the school after me, I'm not giving you the money. It's not exactly charity. Why are people do that? Why do people do that? Why do they spend millions of dollars? And it's because they want their name to live on. And by the way, it's futile. I went to OSU. I could tell you the names of most of the buildings. That's all it is, is a, pile, is a stack of bricks. I don't know who the people are that they're named after. don't know anything about them. I just know that that's the name of the building, right? And, and I'll say this, too. It's not, it's, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad for this. I'm an educator. We need donations. That's the only way you can make progress. And so it's not like it's entirely wrong to say, hey, I want to donate money. And, you know, they're going to say, well, we'll name this building. Okay, whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm thankful for the donations that have been made through the years. There's hospitals named after people, and those hospitals are saving lives, right? There's, there's science buildings that have been named after people, and they're discovering great things because of the technology that that money was able to buy. So I'm not here to beat that up, but what I'm here to do is point out that they are trying, without realizing it, they're trying to buy their name into eternity. They're trying to live on past their own life, right? Because our name 
is important to us. I say all of that to demonstrate that carnal men hold their name extremely high. It is extremely important to them. Their name living on as many of them get older becomes the most important thing. A lot of times uh, they get to a point in their life and they say, I've made all this money or I've done all these things and what's going to happen? I know I'm going to die soon and how am I going to live on? In ancient times, it was more through family. That's why having children was so important. It wasn't because they could see, like we do, that children are a blessing from God and they're a way to extend, you know, our influence in the world and, and we have people that we can teach the ways of God. That's not the, a lot of the ancient times. It was their legacy. It was my lineage. How am I going to live on if I don't have children? And that's where you go back and you, what Paul has been going through in Genesis we see a lot of Abraham struggling with this, major struggles because he wasn't having kids. We see Isaac, the same way, Jacob, the same thing. There was, and they would, they would go to extremes so that they would have children. And it wasn't for the right godly reasons. It was for, I have to live on through my children. This is my heritage. This is my lineage. And I have no doubt that was the case with the king of Assyria. His name was Asher Benapal. Asher Benapal. Has anybody ever heard of him? Nope. I'm going to show you why you've never heard of him. God says your name shall be perpetuated no longer. So the first thing that God ha- that we see in this verse is that God is going to destroy the king of Assyria and his name. This includes his heirs. This includes his cities, buildings, and anything else that bears his name. All that is left of, of Ash, Asherbanipal is a very small mention in history to know that he was crushed. That's the first thing. The second thing he says is, I shall cut off the graven and molten image. Turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 5. First Samuel chapter five. I'm going to start just in verse one. Chapter five, verse one. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now Dagon, and I may be saying that wrong, maybe Dagon, I'm not sure, but he was a, it, this was a statue, a Philistine idol that they had built to themselves or to whatever they called a god. And so it was this giant statue. And the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant in there, which is where God resides. At this, in those times, God actually resided with the Ark of the Covenant. And they bring it in and set it down before this idol. In verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning... There was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. This giant statue that they had worked so hard on, face down. And look what they did. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. We'll take this idol, we'll stand it back up. We'll worship it. 
In verse 4, And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon falling on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the thresholds. Only Dagon's torso was left on it. Before God, before the face of God, the idols were humiliated. I mean, that's humiliating, right? We have this thing that we worship. You bring in this Ark of the Covenant, this, this actual Ark of God, and what does, what does Dagon do in the face of God? He falls over. Humiliating. And that's what he's saying over here in Nahum. He's saying... God said, basically, Nahum is saying, God is saying, I will humiliate your idols and then destroy them. I shall cut off the graven and molten image. This thing that you have made that you worship, and they were idol worshipers, the Assyrians. There was many idols in that city that were going to be destroyed. And God says, I'm going to cut that off. And then the third thing, the final blow to the royal ego. God tells the mighty king of Assyria, I shall dig your grave. And so the end of your life, the end of your career will have no honor. Your life has no honor and there will be no honor in your death because you are vile. We don't understand, I I think, the, the measure of insult that is why because we don't understand kingdoms and kings and war at that time it was a great i mean when two kingdoms came to battle if a king died then they were given the the other kingdom the other group of people were given the body and there was great honor bestowed no matter what he was a king kings had an had a Respect for kings, right? And so, if if this would have been, if this would have been two armies fighting, and Ashurath, I can't even remember how to say it without reading it, the king of Assyria would have died, then they would have honored his death because he was the king. But what we have here is the king of kings says, "Your death has no honor. Your life has no honor." And your death has no honor. Why? Because you are vile. The Hebrew word there for vile is kalal. And it means worthless or insignificant. And that is the ultimate insult to the egotistical dictator. You will have nothing left of you. All of this that you've done, all that you feel like you have conquered will be gone. It will be not remembered at all. The only thing that will be written of it is how it fell. And basically that's what we have. And that is their biggest fear. That is how it is for all those that set themselves against the Lord and his people. That is the ultimate outcome. Even if it doesn't happen on this earth, it will happen. It is ultimately vile. It is ultimately worthless. Your efforts on this earth, apart from Christ, are vile. But the Lord also works in another way. So look at verse 15. Behold, 
on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You know, when you read through Nahum, it's kind of a bleak, dark book. The picture I just gave you from verse 14 is um, not exactly cheery. <laughs> you know, it's not exactly one that you're going to hear on the positive message podcast. But it's very true. But when you read through Nahum, you think, man, this whole book is that way. But there's these little places through it that are actually the opposite. And I think that's what we're seeing in verse 15. This messenger, it says, Behold on the mountains the feet of him who bring good tidings. He's a messenger. He's bringing good tidings. As he comes over, the, the, this messenger will have witnessed the fall of Nineveh, and he's bringing the news to Judah. So this is all prophetic. This is all going to happen in the future. Nahum's prophesying of it. But this is what, we're, what they will see. He brings the good news to Judah. As he comes over the mountains... And declares good tidings, I have good news. No longer will Assyria torment you. And if you were here earlier, you know some of the things that the Assyrians did. It was absolutely horrendous. I mean, absolutely despicable how they treated people. Not just the Jews, but anybody who defied them. Any enemies that came in their way was absolutely horrendous. They would make Hitler look like a choir boy. It was, and I won't even go to the details, but killed thousands upon thousands of people, stacking their heads up, beheading them, stacking them up into pyramids, hanging them from trees, all of these things. And, and Judah, or Israel, had been dealing with this for years. And now the messenger comes over the hilltop and he says, no longer. That is over. The judgment that has come on Assyria frees you as a nation but it's interesting there how it focuses on his feet which possibly points to the haste in which he's bringing the message he's in a hurry right this is great news i just saw the city of nineveh collapse the one that nobody thought would ever fall it's gone the king that has been tormenting you, his people that have been tormenting you, they are gone. So he's coming running with this great news, right? He comes over the mountaintop. But it also brings other scriptures in mind, I'm sure. If you're familiar with the scriptures, these have probably come into your head, especially in Romans. But first, let's look at Isaiah. Well, you don't have to turn there. But Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountain." Are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And now turn to Romans chapter 10, which actually Paul was quoting that from Isaiah when he says it. Romans chapter 10 in verse 14, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? 
And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? And here's where Paul quotes Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Paul's directly quoting Isaiah and Nahum is basically saying the same thing. How beautiful are the feet. Again with the feet. Is that curious to anybody? Like, why the feet? Why not the eyes? Why not the voice, right? The proclamation's coming from the voice. Why not the, the words? How beautiful are the words of him that preached the gospel? How beautiful are the hands? Why, why is it the feet? It's because the feet are the mode of transportation, if it were the voice of the words or the hands or the eyes, they could do that. You could do that sitting right in your own house. But the feet, the feet are what take the gospel out. He says, behold the feet. That's what Nahum says. Behold the feet. Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet. Because they take the message of good tidings out. The feet are the ones that carry it over the mountaintops. The feet are the ones that take it across the canyons, across the deserts, to proclaim the gospel of peace. And there's a big lesson in that for each one of us. Our feet need to be moving. I don't remember who it was that said it. Meant, I don't remember who it was that said that the Bible should be wrapped in shoe leather because it should be walked out. That's how we need to be as Christians. That's how we need to be as the people of God, the people that bear the name of Jesus Christ. We need to be walking this out. We need to be taking this message out over the mountaintops, across the deserts, down the pavement, down the pavement of our streets. That's why the feet are beautiful. And there it is again, right? I started, I said, there's little, these little pictures of hope. There it is again in this book full of judgment and condemnation. We find hope. Hope in the Lord. Hope in our Lord, Jesus Christ. The messenger in Nahum is bringing news of victory over their immediate enemy, Assyria. Behold him. And this is a great day for Israel. He says, keep your feasts, keep your vows. In other words, celebrate. Enjoy this time. It probably shows that for a long period of time they have not been able to keep the feasts because of the thumb that had been put on him. He would not allow him to worship. Kind of like going back to Egypt. They wanted to go worship. He said, let my people go that we may worship, that we may sacrifice. Well, it was the same way with Assyria's oppression. They would not let them participate, practice their ordinary religious practices. So now when this happens, when the messenger comes, God says, keep your feasts. You can go back. You can have your feasts. You can worship God. Keep your vows and enjoy this time. But this is a mere shadow of that which was to come. A microcosm of the deliverance from all the oppression that comes as a consequence of sin 
Satan and death. And that's where we come in. That's where we come in. We are to be the messengers. We're to be the ones that you see climbing over the hill. When Nahum says, blessed are the feet, that is talking about everyone who claims the name of Christ. You should have your feet on the move. Your feet should be the ones that are called blessed. The ones carrying the good tidings. The message of the cross. The message that the oppressor will no longer be oppressing us. And that's the other way the Lord works. Through redemption. See, we look at Nahum, he's preaching a very bleak and scary message to the Assyrians because the window was closed and it was time for God's wrath to come pouring out on them. But we bring a message in a different time. Our message comes in a time that actually creates a two-part message. Okay, so let me explain that. The first part of the message is the same as Nahum, or rather Jonah, and that is that judgment is coming. That's our message, part of it. Right? Judgment is coming on the nations who rage against truth and goodness, against truth and righteousness, and the nations are raging against that. Our nation is raging against truth and justice. We are living in a country, we're living in a time, we're living in a culture where evil is called good and good is called evil. That's a fact. There's no way around that. And judgment is coming to that. But more importantly, judgment is coming on the souls of those individuals who are not under the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. And there will be people that agree with us I and mean, Paul was talking about it this morning. There will be people that agree with us on a lot of things. And the judgment that needs to be come and justice needs to be served. And our country is going way left. And we have all these problems. But yet the problem that we face as Christians is those people's souls are under judgment just like the far left is. You can be a Republican and go to hell. Okay? You can be against homosexuality, and you can be against abortion, and you can be against murder, and you can be against a lot of things and still go to hell. And our message is to all of those people. It's to the nations, but more importantly, it's to the individuals. Each one is a soul, and each one God has created in His image. And our job is to bring good news that you don't have to. You don't have to perish. There is an escape. And that's an important... So, so the judgment is coming. And that's an important part of the message because you probably think you're a pretty good person, right? There's many... I think they're good people. You know, we learned a long time ago uh, from Ray Comfort, the good person test. You ask people, do you consider yourself a good person? I don't know how many people I talk to on the streets with that very thing. And I can remember one that said no. 
And they were the most honest person, most honest sinner I had ever met. And they just basically said, look, I'm not a good person. I've done this and this and this. I know I'm a bad person. But every other one, you go, are you a good person? Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty good. Every man will declare his own goodness. That's what the Bible says. And there's people here who may be thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. There's many who are fighting against causes that we would fight against. There's many who would fight against causes that we would fight for. I mean, that are fighting for causes that we would fight for. But yet, the, at the end of the day, there's one line. There's one question. And compared to the holiness and perfection of Jesus Christ, every one of us are wicked sinners. You're a wicked sinner. But that brings us to the second part, right? I said it's a two-part message. The second part of the message is similar to the messenger coming over the hill in Nahum. And that is that the victory has already been declared. The second part of the message is you don't have to remain in that sin. You can be made perfect. Now, listen very closely because people get this wrong. People misunderstand Christians when they say you can be made perfect because then they start thinking, well, he's preaching perfectionism. He thinks he's perfect. No, I'm far from it. But I am sitting under the blood of the one who is. He has put it over me like this. It's called atonement. Jesus Christ was perfect. I was talking to a lady yesterday, and I was sharing the gospel with her. And when I did, I said, you know, the only one who was perfect was Jesus. He came, and he never told a lie. He never, he never disobeyed. He never dishonored his parents. Can you imagine raising a kid like that? Man. He was perfect. He walked perfectly. He spoke perfectly. He never had an impure thought. And yet, he died and suffered the wrath of God. And when he did that, he, he put his, God's wrath was put on him and he put his atonement on us. So when God looks at me, he no longer sees Justin. He no longer sees my sin. What does he see? He sees the perfection of Christ who's covering me. That is amazing news. Good news doesn't even cover it. It's actually unbelievable that a perfect God would die in my place. Why would he do that? Because he's perfect. He wanted to choose to die in my place. And he wanted to cover me with his blood so that I could be redeemed. And you can be redeemed. And he's provided that as the second part of the message. The victory has already been declared. Christ won the battle on the cross. That's why he says, it is finished. This last song we sang was perfect for this. It is finished was the victory cry. It means paid in full. There is nothing else that can be done. I was trying to explain this to this lady yesterday. She couldn't understand it. There's nothing that can be done. There's nothing that can be added to his work. Just repent. Come under him. Believe in him. Trust in him. It is finished. We have this message of hope that not only can you avoid the judgment 
of God. But we have a better message. And that is that you can live forever in His presence and in His love. That's incredible. It can't get any better than that. When you get a hold of that, you'll understand why it is that we need to be like Nahum. Why we need to be like the messenger in Nahum and take this message. Share it with your friends. Share it with your neighbors. Share it with anybody who will bother to listen to you. Why? Because if they could just hear it and they could just believe it, it would change their lives forever and it would grant them eternal life. So I'm going to stop there. We have communion, and Randy's going to come up and do communion. I'm going to stop there. So two verses that I thought we were going to go right over the top. Turns out God has way more depth than we can ever imagine. Would you bow with me? Father, I thank you. What an amazing gospel. What an amazing message you have given us. And what an amazing responsibility it is to carry this message. God, I pray that I would have a desire to handle your word accurately at all times. I would have such a desire, too, that I would spend time studying it, that I would handle it correctly. And I pray that for each one here, that you would give us a desire to do that. I pray, God, that if there's any here who have not bowed a knee, who have not come under that blood, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And I pray for all those that have, that it would be an encouragement to us that we would have an encouragement to go out and share this message with others that they could be saved. They could be saved in Jesus' name. In his name I pray. Amen.